Our text of Scripture for today comes from the book of Genesis, the story of Hagar and Ishmael, from the 21st chapter, beginning with the 8th verse. I invite you to listen for God's Word. The child Isaac grew and was weaned. Of course, you remember that Isaac was the child of promise born to Sarah. And Ishmael was the child born to Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. But Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son For the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son, Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son, but God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of the Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. So, gracious God, we come before you and hear these words as they echo down the corridors of time. We ask that by the power of your Spirit in our midst and amongst us, you would speak to us and quiet within us any voice but your own. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the game ended... And the roaring stadium fell silent, empty of fans, become a desolate place full of crushed popcorn boxes and drinking cups and trampled programs. And the coach entered a solemn, deadly, quiet locker room. Helmets are on the floor, jerseys were pulled off and piled up for the wash. I just want you guys to know that I'm real proud of the way you played this afternoon. Real proud. 
We didn't win, but we did prove a lot. We showed a lot of people what we could do. It was a moral victory. A little later on, as they were making their way out of that locker room, a second-string tackle turned to the quarterback and asked, what's a moral victory? It's what the coach tells you when you lose the game, the quarterback said. (laughs) It's what a coach says to a team when he knows it's his last season. Now, if you can't fool a 20-year-old football player about defeat, who can you fool? When they read the scores on the nightly news, nobody ever talks about a moral victory. They just post the scores. The ones with the higher score wins. The ones with the lower score lose. Coaches tell players anything to get them to come back next week and knock heads again. They call it a moral victory, and they say the score didn't really reflect what happened in the game. It's It's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. But the fact is the coach only remains a coach based on a win-loss record that's in his or her favor. Another example, the morning after the election, unused boxes of victory pins and bumper stickers and baseball caps are still boxed in the hall, the balloons and the confetti are still up in the rafters unused. And there's a desperate attempt to smile as though the loss of that election didn't really hurt. I want to thank all of you for all that you've done. We didn't win, but I think we made our point. And I'm sure if we just had a few more weeks, we could have turned things around. If it hadn't been for that FBI investigation in the 11th hour, I want to thank everybody for everything. Someday we'll probably look back on this as a good experience. Defeat. Failure. How do you deal with defeat in life when things don't go as you planned them to go? You can use some cheap rationalizations. It was a moral victory, a good learning experience, or you can blame it on some other person or some other circumstance, or you can even claim not to have any knowledge or responsibility for this failure. In Genesis, in the very early chapters, it says, Adam said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And, of course, she said, well, the serpent whom you created, he gave me the fruit to eat. Rationalization and blaming is nothing new. It's as old as time itself. Now, most of us know what it feels like to be a little defeated. You interview for a job, you think it goes well, you leave that place full of hope, and then... The phone rings and the voice on the other end says a lot of complimentary things before they say, we wish you well in your job search. And you begin to feel just a little bit humiliated in the eyes of those people who are important to you. You begin to even doubt yourself. Rejection just has a way of distorting 
your view of the world. And life sometimes can feel like it's filled with all these catch-22 situations you just can't win. Leaves you feeling a bit like you're a victim of circumstances beyond your control. And that brings me to this story of Hagar and Ishmael. When Sarah gave up hope of ever having a baby, she said to her husband Abraham, you ought to get to know my servant girl Hagar a little better. So Abraham did. And Hagar had a son, and they named him Ishmael, and he became Abraham's heir. But later on, Sarah would have a child herself, Isaac. And suddenly there was a big problem in that home. The older boy would inherit everything. But God had promised to give everything to her boy, Sarah. I mean, to Sarah's boy, Isaac. And Sarah couldn't even stand watching the two boys on the same level when they were playing together. I mean, you can imagine the scene. Here's little Isaac, the baby, who grabs a hold of Ishmael's hair and starts pulling it, and Sarah rushes into the nursery in the midst of that squabble and supports little Ishmael. Your little brother doesn't know that he's hurting you. He's just a baby. And a few minutes later, there's another scream from the nursery, and Sarah rushes in, and this time it's Isaac who's bawling. She asked Ishmael, what just happened? Nothing. <laughs> and soon, Hagar and Sarah aren't getting along at all. And finally, Sarah says to Abraham, send her away. She wanted the mother and that little boy of hers out of her life forever. It's really kind of a difficult report about the ethics of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah couldn't simply celebrate the birth of her own son and enjoy the gift of it all and leave it at that. And Abraham doesn't seem to care enough about Hagar and her son, so Abraham has a lunch packed for them and sends them out into the desert. Life sometimes is just unfair. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. Hagar deserves something better than this. Soon the water runs out, so does the food, and life begins to feel like a remarkably losing proposition. And the boy collapses under the tree, and Hagar goes a little ways away and tries to hold herself together. She's exhausted, she's bitter, she's rejected, confused, hopeless. It isn't right, and it wasn't fair. I can begin to understand why the Black Lives Matter movement has taken shape. And I can see why Cesar Chavez, a farm worker and civil rights activist, co-founded the United Farm Workers Union, fed up with the way fruit pickers were being treated. 
I can begin to understand why marginalized people and those treated as second-class citizens feel defeated over and over and over again. Asian students who outperform other students and are better qualified for admission to college are denied admission because there are too many Asian students in the class already. It isn't fair the way some people are treated. And the starting line in the race for success unfairly rewards some and disadvantages others. So in a time of tribalism, when tribalism seemed to dominate the landscape back in this Old Testament period, and God's people had enemies amongst the Philistines and the Midianites and the Ammonites, who all probably spoke Semitic languages, there is this story about the Ishmaelites who were actually brothers. And it's a story about God's protection and care for those who are treated unfairly and who suffered defeat time and time again. And it's an un, it underscores the story from the very first chapters of Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel, where we're encouraged not to be keepers of one another, but brothers to one another. And maybe this is a word that has more meaning and significance for us in our tribalisms today. You see, my enemies are not God's enemies. So Hagar hears a voice in the wilderness, in the desert. There's no food, there's no water. She's thrown out of her house. What's the trouble, Hagar? My boy is dying under the tree, and you ask me, what's the trouble? She replies, Hagar, you look scared. Do you think there's a wilderness so barren, so trackless, so deep, so dark that I cannot find you there? says the Lord. Do you think there is some place in all creation where I cannot find you, where I will not take care of you? I am still God, says the Lord. Now come on and get up. Take that boy of yours in your arms. I'm going to make him a great nation. So Hagar gets up and she hangs on to her boy and then she saw something. Something she had missed before, a well of promising life, water in the desert. Her feelings of rejection, her feelings of bitterness and anger had distorted her view of reality. And suddenly God opened her eyes to something that she had not seen before right in front of her. And she filled her water skin and she gave the boy a drink. 
They had lost their inheritance through no fault of their own, but God was with them. And God is not only with those who are on the inside, but also with those who are on the outside. And God is with me not only when I win, but also when I lose. And there is no wilderness so barren or distant that God cannot find me and sustain me in this life. Dr. Tom Long tells the story of a mild argument he had with an ethicist friend who was making a case for a certain kind of equity justice. Namely, that the truly just society is one in which justice is like the blindfolded statue, and every person is treated exactly the same. And this ethicist backed up her argument by telling him of an incident with her two young children she discovered they were fighting over a candy bar, so she told the older child to divide the candy bar in half, one piece for herself, one piece for her younger sister. And when the older sister did as she was told, the mother then invited the younger sister to pick out which of the two pieces of the candy bar she wanted for herself. And it was a kind of nice solution, since the one doing the dividing was not the one doing the picking and thus putting incentive into the system to be completely fair when you're doing the dividing. Society, she argued, would benefit from such fairness, impartiality, and equality. Tom Long writes, that may work for dividing Hershey bars and Social Security benefits but it's less successful in plumbing the character of human need and desire. At our depths, we do not desire to be treated with impartial indifference. We wish to be known, to be understood, to be treasured, to be treated as if we are our own very particular people. In fact, the candy bar incident does not reflect how a mother actually treats her children. She does not show her love blindly and equally, dividing things right down the middle. If one of them has the flu, she doesn't desert that child after a few minutes to give precisely the same amount of time to the other one. If one of them comes home from school crying because her friends have treated her badly, that's the one who gets that little extra helping of motherly affection. In the law courts, we may desire that justice wears a blindfold in partially dispensing benefits in equal proportion. But we want parents, and we want God as a heavenly parent not to wear a blindfold at all, but instead to see us in all our need, with all our particularity, and with eyes of tenderness and love. So Tom Long writes, God is not like the planet Venus, distant and cold, shining monochromatic love on all people. 
God does love all people, but that's not where we start. God of the Bible is the God who loved Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. We start with a God who loves particular people and then we discover that God loves people everywhere. God loves Sarah and Hagar in all their particularity and neediness. God loves Isaac and Ishmael. God loves Jacob as well as Esau. And the God described in the Bible is not a sentimentalized version of love that floats around in popular culture, a vague principle. The God we encounter in the Bible is remarkably personal and freely gives himself, searching out the lost in whatever wilderness we find ourselves in, in whatever defeat we may have experienced. The New Testament puts it this way. The apostle writes in Ephesians, Remember that you were at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Sounds to me like what Hagar was experiencing. But Jesus came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him both of us have access to the one Spirit in the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We all know that life can be unfair. We all know what it is to experience defeat and failure along the way. But God is faithful and just. And God is not blind to our travails or our struggles. And God is not simply a nebulous concept of love. God loves you. And God loves me. And we're no longer strangers or aliens, but citizens with the saints of the household of God. We are adopted into the family of our Lord. And we too will inherit. So get up and fill your skin with water. Don't be blinded by your own disappointments and rejections. Believe that God is present with you even in this desert and this wilderness. And continue the journey. Because the Lord intends to make of you a great nation. And it's called the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen.